Okay. Um, hey, again, welcome. Uh, welcome to RUF. We, we are here primarily um, to look at what the Bible says and to take an honest look at what the Bible's about. And so that means if you're in this room and you are somebody that uh, identifies yourself as a Christian, then you are uh, welcome here. But if you're somebody who does not self-consciously identify yourself as a Christian, you are welcome too because the Bible is here to be explored and to look at for, for, for everybody. So we're glad that you're here, regardless of where you stand spiritually or where you uh, align yourself. And um, one of the things we do is we do look at the Bible, and what we're doing this semester is looking at a, a book of the Bible, the fifth book in the Bible, the book of Deuteronomy, which I know already... Uh, you know, gasps are, you know, being emitted. But um, we're going to look at it again. This is our second week. We said last week that, the, that this book is really about two different things. One is a very obvious thing and one is a very subtle thing. And so last week we looked at the subtle one, uh, that the book is about the kingdom of God. And tonight we're looking at the more explicit theme, which is uh, the covenant of God. We'll talk about what that means. But let's check out... Deuteronomy chapter 4, and um, I'll read this for us, and then we'll, <clears throat> then we'll jump in and check it out. This is God's Word, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart as long as you live. Teach them to your children and to their children after them. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb when he said to me, Assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire. You heard the sound of words but saw no form. There was only a voice. And he declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and laws you are to follow in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Then we're going to jump to verse 21. The Lord was angry with me because of you, and he sw solemnly swore that I would not cross the Jordan and enter the good land the Lord your God has given you as your inheritance. I will die in this land. I will not cross the Jordan, but you are about to cross over and take possession of that good land. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that he made with you. Do not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything the Lord your God has forbidden. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. The Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and only a few of you will survive among the nations to which the Lord will drive you. There you will worship man-made gods of wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or eat or smell. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him, if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. 
He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. This is God's word. Let me pray for us and then we'll check it out. Father, we ask for your help uh, tonight uh, because we cannot learn what this passage means apart from your help. And I ask especially, would you help preserve my voice uh, for tonight uh, that I would communicate clearly and clearly. uh, that this passage would make sense both to me and to uh, these folks here. And, and so we ask for your help from the Holy Spirit to come and to open our eyes and unclog our ears that we would actually be able to behold the truth of this passage. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> I was a um, philosophy major at the University of Oklahoma where I did my undergrad. And uh, I ended up taking this upper classman class uh, called uh, Metaphysics, which ended up being one of my hardest classes that I took in college. And, you know, it's just like most philosophy classes. If you've ever been in a philosophy class here, you're, most of the time you're asking yourself, why are we talking about this? What, what, what's going on here? And so one of the professors, you know, a professor comes in one day and brings in this, you know, uh, clay statue, like this, you know, garden gnome, and uh, puts it on the table and says, all right, class, is that one object or is that two objects? Everybody's like, what are you talking about? And so, you know, you, he, so he says, you can philosophically make the case that this is both a statue and a lump of clay, two objects simultaneously taking up the same space and the same time in the same moment. And so for the first third of this class, we went around the room arguing whether or not this thing was one object or two objects. And there's all of this confusing terminology, you know, thrown in. And so you're, you're throwing around words like modal properties and contingent identities. And, you know, it's like it was this extremely confusing. I was lost half of the first third of the semester. But it was unbelievably important for me to get this confusing terminology down because we had a midterm coming up over all of this stuff. <laughs> so why am I talking about this? Because... Tonight, we're looking at the way that God relates to people, namely by way of covenants. Now, just that word alone, my guess is most of y'all in this room are already lost. What is that? What are you talking about? What does that even mean? And so if that's you, you are, that is okay. You are in good company. My guess is most of the room does not understand what that means. But for as confusing as the terminology may be, it is unbelievably important, and here's why. Because God only relates to people through covenants. This is such a huge theme and such a huge you know, thing in the Bible that the entire book of Deuteronomy is framed around this idea. And you could even make the case that the entire Bible is framed around this idea. So if it is this big of a topic, that this is the way that the only way that God relates to people is through covenants, and this is what Deuteronomy is about, this is what the Bible is about, this is what Christianity is about, we've got to look at it even if it may be confusing and the wording of it may be weird. So we're going to jump in. So tonight, here we go. Covenants. And I want to look at it under three headings, as you could have guessed. The nature of a covenant, the tension within the covenant, and then the resolution to that tension. All right? The nature, tension, resolution. So let's, let's look at what a covenant is. What's the nature of a covenant? What is it basically? You could say basically that a covenant 
is a relational arrangement, and a relational agreement. Some people have compared it to a contract, but we're going to nuance that as we go. So there you go. But before we go any further, let me just kind of situate where we are within the context of this book and kind of what's going on with Deuteronomy as a whole. Because you remember, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. And God powerfully rescues them out with the ten plagues. You, from, you remember all this. And they cross the, the sea and they go into the wilderness. And at some point, they get to the, the, to the base of Mount Sinai where God shows up and smoke and, and fire and, and lightning. And Moses goes at the thing and God says, the mountain, and uh, <laughs> God says to Moses, all right, this little ragtag group of people, these Israelites, they're going to be my people now. And here's what I want you to do in response to what I've already done for you. The Ten Commandments. These are the terms of the covenant, right? So he comes down with these, you know, stone tablets. All this rings a bell. If you're, if you're familiar with Christianity or with not familiar with Christianity, this probably rings a bell because of movies and whatever else. But So there you go. So what Moses is doing in this passage, Moses is the guy that's writing this and was originally spoke this. He's reorienting the people of Israel and he's reorienting us back to that moment when Israel's there at the... Mount Sinai thing and God shows up. So here we go. Verse 10. Moses says this. Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb. Horeb is another word for Mount Sinai. So he's saying, hey, remember that day we were hanging out at Mount Sinai? And then he said, it goes on. And he said to me, assemble the people before me to hear my words so that they may learn to revere me as long as they live in the land and may teach them to their children. You came near and stood at the foot of the mountain while it blazed with fire to the very heavens with black clouds and deep darkness. And then the Lord spoke to you out of the fire and you heard the sound of the words, but you saw no form. There was only a voice and he declared to you his covenant, the Ten Commandments, which he commanded you to follow and then wrote them on two stone tablets. And the Lord directed me at that time to teach you the decrees and the laws you are to follow in the land that you're crossing over the Jordan to possess. Right? So this is him situating us at that moment. Hey, remember when God initiated this thing called a covenant? So basically, let me help round this out by three sort of elements of what a covenant really is. The first element is this, that it is a relational arrangement. Okay? First element. God shows up and says, I want to have a relationship with you. This is God initiated. He says, Israel, you are going to be mine now. Relational arrangement. You know what God's doing here? He's having a DTR. <laughs> Y'all still use that language? Yeah. Define the relationship. Y'all don't use this anymore? You know when you're like hanging out with somebody and it's, you know, you're kind of digging on each other but you don't really know if, if the other person likes you or not. It's just kind of this weird, kind of vague, awkward feeling. And then you eventually have some conversation late at night usually where, where you establish, okay, we are going to be dating now. You define the relationship, and then you go to Facebook and change it from single to <laughs> dating, right? And then to, uh, I mean, you make it FBO. Have you heard this? Facebook, Facebook official. <laughs> That's right. God is making this FBO right here. He looks at the people of Israel and says, all right, y'all are going to be mine now. I'm going to define this relationship. This is God establishing this. So that's the first element, relational arrangement and a relational agreement. The second element involved in what a covenant is, is the, is, is the element of obligation. Every contract has terms and expectations and obligations to it, right? That's what makes a contract a contract. This, this uh, 
uh, over the break, Catherine and I, my wife Catherine, uh, we, we got uh, direct TV now. We've, we've got channels on our television now. So y'all can come over and watch March Madness and American Idol and whatever y'all watch. I don't even know what y'all watch anymore. Something I can't think of. And then... Uh, but basically, when, when we entered into that contract with DirecTV, there were certain terms and there were certain obligations involved, right? We have to pay them X amount of money per month. And when we do that, there is this blessing involved. They give us channels, way many, too many channels, we can't even get through them all, right? But if we don't pay, there's a curse involved. They say, you owe us more money. You've got to pay up. Violation. Slap the wrist. <laughs> so, if you pay, you get good things. If you don't pay, you get bad things. Blessings and curses. This is how uh, covenants work. There are obligatory terms and arrangements and expectations for each party. And this is, this is Moses' whole point here. So he says, hey, remember, we agreed to do something. So he says in verse 9, go back with me to verse 9. He says, only be careful and watch yourselves closely so that you do not forget the things your eyes have seen or let them slip from your heart. Then bounce down to verse 23. Be careful not to forget the covenant of the Lord your God that He made with you. He's basically saying, don't forget to keep your end of the deal of this covenantal arrangement here. There are obligations in place. Don't forget to keep them. If we keep them, good things happen. But what happens if we don't keep the terms of this covenant, which are the Ten Commandments? What do we do if we break? What happens if we break these? Well, let's look at verse 25 through 26. After you have had children and grandchildren and have lived in the land a long time, if you then become corrupt and make any, uh, any kind of idol, which is breaking the first commandment, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God and provoking Him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. So, if you keep the terms of this covenant... You will live long in the land. Blessing. You will be a blessing to other people. If you break the terms of this covenant, you will be cast out and destroyed. Penalty. Curses to you. Right? So these are the, the blessings and curses of the terms of the covenantal arrangement, if you're tracking with me. Think about it like this. I mean, y'all make many covenants all the time, even with the way that y'all date each other. Dating is sort of like a pseudo-miniature covenant. Because you have... You have terms and expectations of each other, right? You are pledging each other to exclusivity. Whether or not you are actually saying that, but that's what you are doing when you are establishing a relationship. You say, we are only going to date each other. And so, if somebody breaks that mini-covenant and starts dating somebody else or does something with somebody else, you rightly are hurt because they broke the, they broke the terms of that arrangement, right? There are expectations and obligations even in the way that we uh, date each other. So, first two elements, it is... Uh, relational arrangement. It is involving terms and obligations. And, and the third element is that it involves love. It is an element of love. So, so uh, look at verse 24 real quick. It says, For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. It says, the Bible says that God is jealous. Now, the Bible doesn't use jealous in the same way that we do because we typically use jealous as a word, as a synonym with envy. It's not saying like, God's jealous that you have an iPhone and he doesn't. You know, that's, this, this is not what it means. It means this is marital language. This is love language. I mean, think about it like this. If my wife Catherine is spending all of this private one-on-one time with another guy, and I'm not jealous, and I'm not angry, 
then this shows that I don't really love her. Jealousy is a byproduct of love for her, right? And this is the same sort of idea. Uh, this is uh, marital language, intense love and intense devotion. So you put all three of these elements together and you have what a covenant is. A relational arrangement that involves both law and both love. Tim Keller, who is uh, a Presbyterian pastor up in New York and he's uh, one of my personal heroes, he puts it like this, which is really uh, helpful. He says, a covenant is a relationship more loving and intimate than a merely legal relationship, and yet more binding than a merely personal relationship. You see the, you see the thing? Mixture of love and law. And here's the thing. You want this kind of relationship with people, and you want this kind of relationship with God. But, it's, but think about it in terms of, of, of with each other. Covenants with each other provides you with security, it establishes a certain level of security because there is law involved. And part of the reasons why y'all are incredibly insecure in the way that you date each other is because there is no law involved. Y'all have kind of pseudo-law involved, but there's not real law involved. You only have love. And as a result, you don't really have love in the same way that you, that you could have if you had covenantal relational arrangements. You tracking with me so far? Uh, basically... I mean, you, you get in a dating relationship, and because there's not a covenant binding it together, you get really insecure about, okay, is the next fight going to be the one that ends this thing? And you, you, you get uh, incredibly insecure. And so one of, the, one of the things that you do in that situation to suck some sort of semblance of security out of it, to get some sort of covenantal security out of it, is to go way too quick emotionally and way too quick physically, way too early. Because what that does is that, is that binds you together in an artificial sort of way, right? And so uh, somebody else, uh, compared, one of my friends compared this to like a dog marking its territory. When you, when you rush in with emotions on hyperdrive or when you mess around way too much, this is you marking your territory in a way of saying, okay, we can't have a real covenant here, so we're going to have an artificial one and sort of just suck some sort of security out of the way that we relate to each other. You tracking with me? If you've... Uh, if you've have y'all seen the movie um, Away We Go with John, Kras- John Krasinski, the gem from Office? The Office? Okay. Well, it's basically a movie about this couple that's uh, uh, dating each other, and, and they're, um, uh, they're having a baby together. But, but the, the guy of the relationship, Jim, <laughs> uh, really, wants to have, uh, really wants to get married. But the girl of this relationship refuses to get married because uh, her parents have passed away and she does not want to get married unless her parents are at the ceremony. So there's this, uh, so they don't, so she doesn't want to get married. So there's this huge pivotal moment at the end of the movie where they're laying on a trampoline, if you've seen, if you've seen it, and they have this really fascinating conversation. And so I'm going to just read you. I just jacked this off of uh, uh, some, something on the internet. This is the, the screenplay. Uh, Bert is... Jim's character, and he says this. He's looking at his uh, uh, girlfriend, and he says, you promised to never marry me because you don't want to marry me without your parents there, and I get that, and you promised to never leave me, but do you promise to never leave this baby we're having, unless maybe part of your brain gets knocked off by an I-beam or something? And then the girl says, I do, and then he continues, and do you promise to let our daughter be fat or skinny or any weight at all because we want her to be happy no matter what and eating disorders are too stupid and cliche for our daughter? And she says, I do. And then she goes on. 
And do you promise to raise this kid without fear, without child leashes and fences, and without buying into the insane and almost totally unfounded child abduction paranoia crippling our nation? And he says, I do. And then he goes on. And do you promise that if I get one of those parasites that creeps up your nose after you go swimming in certain shallow lakes and then slowly eats your brain and you die within a week, do you promise that you'll lie and tell our daughter that her father was killed by Russian soldiers in intense, in intense hand-to-hand combat so he could save 850 Chechnyan orphans? Do you? And she says, I do. Yes, I do. But you see what they're doing, right? As, as, as you know, uh, informal and funny as it is, they're exchanging vows to each other. They are promising and pledging. They're making covenantal-esque vows to each other. Even if they couldn't get married, they had to artificially get married. Even though they couldn't get into a real covenant, they had to artificially create a covenant. And here's the point with all this. The most meaningful relationships you will have are going to be covenantal. So how much more meaningful is your relationship with God going to be? Or how much more covenantal does your relationship with God have to be? God only relates to people covenantally. Okay? Now let's jump into the next part here because maybe you caught the tension, the problem of this as we read the passage. Let me explain what I mean. We've already talked about how a covenant has terms and obligations, right? Let me read it again. Verse 25. After you have had grandchildren, after you have had children and grandchildren and live long in the land... Uh, and have lived in the land a long time, rather. If you then become corrupt and make any kind of idol, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord your God, and provoking him to anger, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. You will not live, long, you will not live there long, but will certainly be destroyed. So if you break the covenant, you will certainly be destroyed. All of the curses of the covenant will come down upon you. Now, some of you look at that and be like, I thought God was into this forgiveness thing. I don't get this. I thought, I thought he was into forgiving me. This sounds like my relationship with him is conditional upon my behavior. That if I don't do something, he's going to smack me. But here's the thing. We have to stop here, and you have to hear this. For as scary and as raw as this is, we have to take this seriously. God says... I cannot bless disobedient people. I have to punish guilty people. Otherwise, I would not be good. Otherwise, I would not be just. If I just wink at sin or I just wink at crime, then that does not make me a good and just judge. I have to punish sin. I have to punish disobedience. Therefore, you have to be obedient. You have to be. And let me keep reading. Because it gets interesting. Verse 29. But if from there you seek the Lord your God, you will find him if you look for him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things have happened to you, then in later days you will return to the Lord your God and obey him. For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. Now it sounds like God is saying, regardless of how disobedient you are, regardless of how messed up you are, I will accept you and forgive you and I will not destroy you because I am merciful. Right? Now it sounds like he's saying, my relationship with you is unconditional of anything that you do. 
so just look at it. I mean, verse 26 says, I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you this day that you will quickly perish from the land. And then look at verse, uh, what is it, 31? For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon you or destroy you or destroy you. So in one sentence he says, I am going to destroy you. Two sentences later, I am not going to destroy you. What do we do with this? This is uh, a problem. This is a tension here, right? God says, I cannot bless you unless you are obedient. And then really, two sentences later, he says, I will bless you even if you are disobedient. And by the way, this is not just a tension for this little passage. This is a tension that plays out all throughout the Bible. Because God's people are constantly screwing up. God's people are constantly saying, I don't give a rip about you and doing their own thing. And so you start to begin to wonder as you read the, the Bible... What is God going to do? Is he just going to throw up his hands and say, forget y'all, I'm tired of y'all, y'all don't give a rip about me. But if he does that, then he compromises his promise and his faithfulness and his love. So, but what if he says, okay, well, I'm going to bless you anyway. I'm going I'm to uh, bless you even though y'all are disobedient, dis- even though y'all don't give a rip about me. Well, that compromises his justice and his goodness. This is not just an interesting theological puzzle. This has unbelievable implications for your life as well, what you do with this problem. Again, I'm indebted to Tim Keller for all of this because he put his, he put his finger on something here that just kind of uh, opened my eyes to this. How you answer this question gets to the heart of what you believe about God, about what you believe about the gospel, what you believe about Christianity. This gets to the heart of everything. And here's the question. Are the blessings of God conditional or unconditional? Does God bless you? Does God forgive you? Does God do good things for you uh, on the basis of certain conditions that you have to keep or unconditionally? That's the question. The, the more liberal answer to this question is that the blessings of God are unconditional. Yes, you need to obey, but in the end it doesn't really matter. God's going to love everybody and accept everybody regardless. And so in other words... Love is the reality, and law is secondary, right? Some of you have answered this question in this way. And you say, okay, I can live whichever way I want, I can do whatever I want, because in the end, God's just going to forgive me. And so you do that, and you live whichever way you want. And as a result, your life doesn't resemble anything like Jesus or anything like a Christian, and you are miserable, if you're honest with yourself, right? Don't know what's going on out there. But here's the second question. The second answer to the question is, uh, which is the more conservative answer, is no. uh, The blessings of God are conditional. Yes, God is loving and God is gracious, but you have to obey. You've got to be good and you've got to be obedient if you want God to like you, if you want God to love you. And so, in other words, law is the reality and love is secondary. And some of you have answered the question this way, right? That regardless of, uh, of, of God's love... I have to be obedient. I've got to be good. I've got to be, uh, I've got to be a good Christian. And as a result, how do you feel? Guilt-driven? Filled with fear? Condemned by your own inability to keep your own standards? And as a result, your life doesn't look anything like Jesus or like a Christian, and you are miserable. So what do we do with this? Regardless of how you answer this question, it seems like you're in a bad spot, and God's in a bad spot. So how do we resolve this tension? The resolution of the tension is found in verse 31. Let me read it for us. 
For the Lord your God is a merciful God. He will not abandon or destroy you or forget the covenant with your forefathers, which he confirmed to them by oath. This is saying that God has made a previous covenant, a covenant with some other forefathers. Now, uh, the question is, what covenant is that talking about? And every scholar that I could find says that this is talking about a covenant that God made with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. If you're not familiar with that story, let me just give you a quick recap because it's unbelievably important. God comes to this dude named Abraham and says, I'm going to give you unbelievable blessing. I'm going to give you this promised land and I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is sort of the equivalent of saying, you are going to win the lottery and you are going to inherit the Biltmore estate. This is a big deal. And here is Abraham who is childless and who is homeless. And he looks at God and says, okay, how do I know? How do I know that you are for real about keeping this promise to me? And so God says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to round up some animals. Goats and, and uh, uh, cows, round them up and I want you to cut them in half and split them apart. Bloody guts everywhere, disgusting, cut them in half, split them apart, lay them all across the place. And from our cultural vantage point, we look at that and we say, what is going on there? That is disgusting, that is grotesque, that is cruel. What's going on? But here's what's going on. Back in the day, biblical times, when you wanted to establish a covenant, when you wanted to form a contract together, you did it in a very different way than we do it today. Because today, if we want to sign a contract, we just go somewhere and sign our name down. Write it on a sheet of paper, right? If you, when you got your lease to your apartment or wherever, you, you went and you signed your name and that was to officialize, hey, we're in a contract now, we're in a covenant now. But biblical times, they did things a lot more interesting. Uh, they actually reenacted the covenant-making process. So what they would do is they would cut animals apart and make a little path between them. And then both members of, uh, of the, the two different sides of the, the contract parties would walk through these animals. And this was to basically reenact and to establish that what happened to these animals, as I'm walking through it, if I don't keep my end of the deal, then what happened to these animals happens to me. I think this is a very effective way of, of forming agreements. If you did this with your cell phone provider, that, hey, I'm literally going to be chopped in half and chopped to pieces if I don't keep my end of the deal you would probably pay your cell phone bill on time, I would imagine. <laughs> so Abraham cuts up these animals. And he sits and waits, and God shows up. And Abraham is sitting there expecting for both of them to walk through these pieces together. And God walks through. God passes through. And Abraham doesn't. And God says, okay, the covenant is established. And Abraham was never asked to walk through the pieces. And so he is sitting there shocked and astonished. Whoa! I'm supposed to walk through too. What, what, what does this mean? He was dumbfounded. And what this means is this. God is saying, not only will I keep my end of the deal here, I'm going to keep your end of the deal as well. And if I don't keep my end of the deal, the curses here, what happened to these animals is going to come upon me. And even if you don't keep your end of the deal, the curses of this covenant here is going to come upon me as well. I am going to fulfill my end and I'm going to fulfill your end. This is mind-blowing. Every scholar who looks at this doesn't know what to do with this. So let me just ask you, as the Bible unfolds, do God's people keep their end of the deal? Ask yourself that question. 
Have you ever made a promise to God? You know, you're in a, in a, in a tight spot. And you say, God, if you just get me out of this, I'll start going to church more. I'll pray more. I'll read my Bible every morning. How's that working out for you? <laughs> hey, back to school, right? New year, New Year's resolution, new decade, new decade resolution. You know, you come in with all of these things that you want to do differently. We're a week and a half into school. How's that working out for you so far? Maybe some of you good? My point is not to shame you. My point is to say the biblical record of God's people is just as bleak as your record. God's people do not keep their end of the deal. They do not keep their end of the covenant. And so God says, somebody has got to be punished. Somebody has got to be ripped to pieces, and I'm going to volunteer me to do that. So when does God do that? At the cross, right? God comes to earth in the person of Jesus, and he goes to the cross, and he is being beaten and stabbed and pierced and and literally being ripped to pieces in front of, of this crowd. And here's the question, why? Why is Jesus undergoing such this horrific, barbaric treatment? You ever wondered that? I know some people have looked at Christianity and be like, why are y'all always talking about blood and dying? It's so gruesome. What's the, I don't get it. Why can't God just say, okay, I forgive you? But don't you see the cross is situated within this whole thing called covenant where Jesus is actually taking the curse of the covenant and being ripped apart for the people that didn't keep it themselves. And so how is this the resolution of the tension? Is God's blessing conditional or is it unconditional? It is both. God's blessing is both conditional and unconditional. And here's how it works. Jesus fulfills the conditions of the covenant so that God can love you unconditionally. The conditions had to be met. You couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So Jesus stepped in and did it. And so on the cross, what he is doing is he has taken the curse of the covenant. The covenantal violations, that's what he's receiving up there. Now here's why all this matters. Because every one of us in this room is guilty. And we feel guilty. And so we, we have these different strategies to try and get rid of this guilt. We try and cover it up. And so some of you are trying to convince yourself that you're not guilty by trying to convince yourself that you're good because you care about the environment or you care about the poor or you care about health or something like that. And those are all good things to care about, but you're using them in a way to convince yourself that you're not guilty and you are dis- deluding yourself. Some of you are trying to convince yourself that I am good because I actually care about grades and I care about working hard, and those are good things too. But you're using them in a way to say, okay, I've got to get rid of this guilt that I am feeling. Some of you do it through religious activity, coming to RUF and reading your Bible and going to church, all good things. But do it in a way to try and convince yourself, I'm not really guilty. Others of you are just medicating yourself with video games and porn and alcohol and whatever else to just try and get rid of this feeling of actually having to deal with the guilt that you feel in your heart when you're still and quiet, right? And the point is that everybody is guilty. All of us are covenant breakers, me included. And what we all deserve is to be ripped to pieces. But Jesus stepped in and said, I'm going to keep your end of the deal by actually fulfilling the conditions of perfect obedience And I'm going to take the curse of what you deserve and what I deserve. So that when we actually trust in him, when we cling to Jesus, we get to be accepted as covenant keepers. Now here's why all of this matters. And here's why the gospel is good news. Is that you and I get to come to him as guilty. We don't have to cover up. We don't have to pretend like we're somebody that we're not. 
We can actually come to him as messed up and as guilty as we actually feel. And because of what Jesus has done, we are accepted and forgiven. And there is no more curse to be dished out because Jesus has taken it. And so let me conclude with this question, because this is the question that all of this sort of zeroes in on. If I assume that I'm okay with God and that God is okay with me, the question is, upon what basis is that so? Upon what basis are God and I okay? Is it because of something I have done or something that I am doing or something that I will do? Or is it because of everything that Jesus has done? That's the question that you have to answer yourself. That's the question I have to answer. Upon what basis am I okay with God and is God okay with me? That's the question I want to leave you with and that's the question I want you to think about, to pray about, and to um, reflect on. But pray with me right now, if you will. Father, we come to you as guilty covenant breakers. It is only through the work of the perfect covenant keeper, the Lord Jesus, that we can do so. And so we come. We do come guilty. We come with all of our shame and with all of our junk and all of our uh, promises that we have made that we have failed to keep. And in you we find forgiveness. And in you we find uh, perfection. And in you we find acceptance. And so we ask, Father, if there are folks in this room that don't know you, I pray, would you draw their hearts to you? that you would feel safe and attractive and beautiful, and that um, the glory of the covenant, as confusing and as uh, awkward as it may be to even talk about right here, uh, I pray that it would be glorious to us, and that it would be at the center of our heart, and that we would know we only come to you through the blood of Jesus and through his life and through his death and his resurrection. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.